1: This episode is sponsored by Versify. Versify is a show where people tell their stories and then hear their words turned into poetry. The poets listen carefully as people tell stories, then they take what they hear and they turn those words into original poems. Then they recite them back to the storyteller. Here's how host Joshua Moore describes Versify. In every episode of Versify, we focus in on one person's story, paying special attention not only to what they say, but the way they say it. Inside these small exchanges, our poets form connections with their storytellers. They gain insights into their lives because they care to listen closely. There's honestly a sort of magic in the way these writers can take the briefest intimacy, weave it into a work of art, and offer it back as a gift, not only to our participants, but also to our listeners. Versify is a show from Nashville Public Radio and PRX. Stories and poems are gathered with the help of The Porch, which is a nonprofit literary center. And the host, Joshua Moore, is a 27-year-old local poet and Nashville native who helped develop The Porch's existing poetry-on-demand project. In addition to launching Versify, he's working on his MFA in the prestigious Vanderbilt University creative writing program. You can find Versify on your podcatcher of choice or visit versifypodcast.com. That's V e r s i f y
0: You're listening to All the Books, a weekly show of recommendations and enthusiasm regarding the week's new book releases. This is episode 218, and today we are talking about books being released on July 23rd, 2019, and more. I'm Liberty Hardy. Here is Vanessa Diaz, and we're coming to you from Bookriot.com. Hello. Hello.
2: How's it going? It's good. It is hot. I was gonna say, but not as hot as it is where you are.
0: Yeah, which is strange to me because I always think of California as being like the hot state, but it's kind of we're having some kind of stupid heat wave, like dangerous heat levels
2: here in Maine right now.
0: Which is yeah, so strange to me. We're make. definitely
2: doing a bit of a Freaky um, Friday, because it's been, like, really, really pleasant here. <laughs> it's it's so nice yeah. for a change. It's been uh,
0: it's been quite a year. It's been, you know, ups and downs. But
2: hey, we have an up! I have an up to
0: mention, congratulations, you are our new associate editor. I
2: am, yeah, thank you. It's been, like, so weird to, like, not talk about that for a bit, and now it's, like, finally out in the world. It's, it's yeah, I'm pretty jazzed. It means I'm moving to Portland, so... Um, uh, not your Portland, a different Portland, but,
0: but uh, the Portland you're moving to is named after my Portland. Exactly. So there
2: is that. Exactly. Um, and every time I've been up there, all anybody can talk about is their heat and I'm like cracking up cause (laughs) I'm like, yeah, I'm from California. um, Yeah. and this, this place is nice and green. Whereas like everybody's idea of California and San Diego is that it's very green and it, because of our drought, it's just not, but, um, yeah. But yeah, I'm super excited to have come on board. This was my first week, so it's very, very new. But yeah, I'm I'm pretty jazzed to to be part of it full-time now.
0: Excellent. Yay. So I'm going to start talking about books. Actually, before I talk about books, I'm going to talk about our first sponsor. How about that? Let's do that. Uh, Third Love is back. With more than 70 sizes, including their signature half-cup sizes, Third Love designs bras with breast size and shape in mind for a perfect fit and premium feel. Just answer a few simple questions via Third Love's Fit Finder quiz to find your perfect fit in 60 seconds. Then, thanks to Third Love's 100% fit guarantee, you can wear, wash, and put your bra to the test for 60 days. And if you don't love it, you can return it, and Third Love will wash it and donate it to a woman in need. This is hands down the most comfortable bra you'll own, with straps that won't slip, tagless labels, and lightweight, super thin memory foam cups. I was trying to think of a joke that was, like, gone in 60 seconds. Related to bras, but I, I had nothing. Like nothing came out. But if you've been listening to the show, you know that we have received these before. Some of us here. Um, I have them. I love my third love bra. Like I mentioned earlier, it's like a million degrees right here, right, right here. It's a million degrees here in Maine right now, and the humidity is awful. And it's like one of those times where like you just don't want to wear a bra, but it's not that bad. Like I don't mind because I love my third love bra. I mean, obviously. If I could, I would just never wear a bra. Like I just, I just wouldn't. But then the people down in Massachusetts would be like, "Do you mind?" So I always have to wear a bra. So I am really happy that at least it's comfortable and it feels like it's breathing. Not on its own, like you can't feel it breathing. It's nothing that creepy. But it just, it's so hot and it's not that. It's not like sticky and awful like you usually get when you wear a bra in the heat. Um, Of course, I'm inside. You don't catch me running around outside. But still, still kind of hot in here. So I love my Third Love bras, and Third Love knows that there's a perfect bra for everyone. So right now they are offering all the books listeners 15% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash books to find your perfect fitting bra and get fifteen percent off your purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash books for fifteen percent off today. We thank them for sponsoring. Alright. My first pick is the unlikely escape of Uriah Heap by H.G. Perry. Now, first of all, I have to admit I was familiar with the name Uriah Heep. I knew it was a band. I wasn't entirely certain where else I knew it from. Turns out, if you have read uh, David Copperfield, Uriah Heep is a character from that book. So I learned that by reading this book. But this book is so much fun. So much fun. Let me tell you about how much fun it is. It's about a guy. His name is Charlie Sutherland. And he has the ability to read things out of books. Like, we read books and we're like, yeah, these characters really came to life for me. Well, they literally come to life for him. And he's been doing it since he was a little kid. He's a super genius, this Charlie. Like, since he was, like, four, he was reading War and Peace and, you know, all the, all the classics. He's a genius. And also, since he was, like, four or five, he can read things out of books. Like, he really gets into it. He concentrates on something in a book. And all of a sudden, there it is. There's that character. There's that paperweight from 1984. There's that thing he's thinking about right there in the room with him. And he also brings, like, a little personal touch to it. Like, it's his interpretation of these things. Uh, So there's Charlie, and then Charlie has an older brother named Rob, who has kind of been protective of Charlie, but you know at the beginning that, like, something happened when they were teens. And Rob's kind of irritated because, you know, like, you think, like, wow, Charlie's magic, and he can do this. And Rob's kind of like, ugh, my weird little brother. And so Charlie had moved away for a while, and Rob was happy, and... He became a lawyer, and he got married, and he's having this, like, normal life. And then Charlie moved back to town, and he was like, ugh, here we go. And it starts right away, and Charlie's been calling him, and this and that. So at the beginning of the book, Rob gets this phone call from Charlie, and he's like, I accidentally thought up Uriah Heep. I I thought I'm out of the book, and, and I don't know where he went, and I need someone to come over and help me find him. And Rob's like, ugh. And, like, nobody knows that Charlie has this magical ability. And one of the great things about the book is that it doesn't, like, think too much about the magic behind it or why he can do this. It's just kind of like, well, it's accepted. And, you know, Rob accepts it, but, like, they don't tell anyone. Like, Rob's wife doesn't know. Nobody else knows that Charlie can do this. So he goes over to the school where Charlie works, and they're, like, looking for Uriah Heap. And, you know, long story short, there's a confrontation, and Uriah Heap ends up telling him, like, there's a new world coming. And they're like, what does that mean? But they, they don't know. Um, and they also realize, like... Charlie thinks his character is, like, stronger than any that he's ever thought up before. And also, like, very different. He has, like, a different ability that, that Charlie was not aware of. Uh, so they're kind of worried. And then another character that they run into... Well, first, someone sends a char- uh, a creature from a book. I'm not going to tell you what creature. But this creature shows up at Charlie's house. And they're like, okay, bad things are happening. Because Charlie's like, I did not think up this creature and then another character from a book comes and says, like, there's this danger and you need to go to the street. And, and he tells them where the street is and they're like, there's no street there. But it turns out, hey, there is a street because they find it. It's in a wall. Reality is shifting and behind this wall is a bunch of characters from books, like, living in this town that and Charlie did not think them up. And he's like, how did they get here? Who talked them out of this book or who thought them up out of this book? And, you know, who is behind this? Because if not Charlie, like, then they have to imagine that there's someone else who has his abilities. And the world is shifting, like, literally and figuratively. And they have to figure out who is behind it and how to stop it. It's super fun! Like, it, obviously, if you're just... At uh, the very beginning when I started talking about it, I'm sure you, you thought of The Air Affair by Jasper Ford. Um, it's a little it's a little less um, zany than that. It's not, you know, like, there's no time travel or anything um, but it's like fun like that. I mean, you're going to see so many characters that you're familiar with from books. And it's basically what this book is, is a really long, fun analogy for reading. Because it's like, we're literally
2: bringing things to life
0: for us. So it's just really fun. It's The Unlikely Escape of Uriah Heap, And it's by H.G. Perry.
2: Man, I've been wanting to read that since I heard of it. <laughs> it sounds—it's so but, fun. Oh, and it's exactly airfare vibes. Like that's all, immediately what I got from it. But obviously, a little, a little different, a little more. Um, yeah, the, the metaphor for reading. Oh, it sounds so good. I need to do that now. Mine uh, first pick is called "Gods of Jade and Shadow" by Silvia Moreno Garcia. I was so excited for this book the moment it came out. I'm a huge mythology nerd for books. I'm obsessed with like, everything Madeline Miller has ever written and I love Pat Barker. I, I just love mythology. But I've long lamented that most of the stuff that I read seems to be very much like Greek and Roman centric. And that I haven't read anywhere near as much stuff that is, you know, like Latin inspired in any way. And this one is, it's, it's amazing. So it is based in Mexican mythology. Our main character is named Cassiopeia, which is, you know, essentially like a Spanish version of Cassiopeia, the name of the Greek goddess and the constellation. She lives in a small town in Mexico outside of like Merida. And she's, she, she just really is, she's unhappy. She's living a life that's very, very like stunted. Her father passed away. And when he did, her and her mother were kind of left to ruins and had to return, like beg to return to her grandfather's house. They took them in, but essentially have them in like a life of servitude. So the the grandfather is really tyrannical. His son is just as bad. So the mom you know, works day in and day out doing really menial tasks and the this our Cassiopeia, the main character, is just out here scrubbing floors and running every one of their errands, but constantly getting like slapped across the face for it, and she's just treated like, like dirt beyond dirt. So she's dreaming of this life because what she believes is going to happen is that when her grandfather does pass away, that he's gonna leave her something in his will that will allow her to take, you know, just a little bit of money that will allow her to leave and like go to the big city, which in this case is Merida, and like finally be, you know, independent of all this abuse. She gets told one day by her cousin after she kind of sasses him because she is quite sassy even though she knows it's not good for her and that she usually has to pay some kind of price. She sasses him like one time too many and the cousin is basically lets her know, like, you know that all that stuff about the will isn't true, right? Like you're getting nothing. You'll always belong to us. And so she sasses him back one more time and she, essentially the punishment is that she's supposed to go with the entire family to this like trip into the city and then they tell her that she can't go and she has to stay behind and clean the house. So she's you know bummed about that. When she goes into her grandfather's room to, you know, clean it like she's supposed to, she realizes that this key that her grandfather always has around his neck has been left on, like his bedside table. And she gets curious, so she goes poking around. She realizes that there's a trunk in front of her grandfather's bed that she has, you know, dusted a million times, but she's never actually been able to open. She makes this connection. She pops it open with that key, and out pops the Mayan god of death. <laughs> like it's. It kinda of re it, happens. it does. It happened to me last week. Um, but it like he reassembles himself. It's essentially a first a skeleton and it, you know, little by little like pieces itself together, and then like the skin forms itself and like the ligament, you know, she's watching it like in slow motion. Um, homeboy happens to have not a stitch of clothing on it, so that sort of shocks her. But she you know, says like, hey, who are you? And he explains that he is A, the Mayan god of death, uh, B, that he has been in this box for a very long time. And the person who put him there were persons, were her grandfather, who essentially helped capture him at the bidding of his twin brother, like the other um, god of, I think, death. So now he wants revenge, and he essentially enlists Cassiopeia's help, Um, she's sort of bound to him because she's, I think she sustains like this minor injury where like a piece of his bone shard is like in her thumb and she basically has to follow him and like do his bidding and only when he's like fully restored to his power will she be released from like that debt. And then we just basically from there go on this epic journey and it just goes all over Mexico to places that I don't think I've ever seen referenced in books. I mean, It talks about like Mexico City and like Tenochtitlan, but it talks about like the Yucatan Peninsula, about Baja California, which is you know where I I grew up, like across the border from Tijuana and Baja, so that's like like my second home. It was just so great to see like the legends and and folklore of my childhood, and some of which I wasn't familiar with, and some of which I was. But it you know woven into this really awesome piece of mythology with a really really strong uh, character. Like Bead just suffers no fools, and again, she's sassy when even like she shouldn't be, but for the most part, it gets her where she needs to go. So it's just so much fun. It's the imagery is great. The way they describe the cities. um, This, by the way, takes place in the jazz age. So there's a lot there with like flapper culture and, Oh, it's just so great. I I don't think I've ever read a piece of mythology that touches on, on Mexican folklore the way that this one does. So yeah, so much fun. I love it. Um, That is gods of jade and shadow by Silvia Moreno Garcia.
0: So good. Love it. All right. My next pick, before I talk about my next pick, I just want to say that this is a thriller. It's a horror thriller. I'm going to say some really disturbing things um, pertaining to the book, not, just not in general. And, uh, and so if that's not your thing, you might want to skip ahead to the next one. Um, or, you know, you can listen. Or, like, if it might not be the book for you, that's fine, too. But it's lots of fun. Um, you know how much I love fictional crime and horror. So, it is called Theme Music, and it is by T. Marie Vandelli. And like I said, if grap- graphic depictions of violence isn't your cup of tea, you might want to skip ahead or skip the book. And if it is, please come sit next to me, because woohoo! This one is so ridiculously wild and violent. Uh, starting off with the very first chapter, the beginning of the prologue, we find out that Dixie Wheeler, the main character of the book, when she was one year old, and eating her Cheerios in her high chair while her family was gathered for dinner, her father came in and killed her mother and three brothers with an axe before uh, slicing his own throat. <laughs> cool. So, so that happened. Uh, she was a year old. Of course, it made the headlines. It was big news. And the press referred to her as Baby Blue because when her brother's friend showed up, her oldest brother's friend showed up to see her brother... Uh, he found her. She was sitting in her high chair. And Baby Blue by Bad Finger was playing on the radio. And so that's... And, like, it was, like, playing on repeat. So that's how they referred to her. as like, Baby Blue. She was the survivor of this horrible, horrible thing. And so she ends up living with her aunt and uncle and growing up with them and sort of being kept out of the eye of the press. Like, they don't really know her name or where she is now. And people kind of, you know, forget about her. But as she gets older, there's, like, these, you know, articles that are, like, whatever happened to Baby Blue? And, you know, so... But, like, she's been, like, living her own life... Sort of hidden away. Um, and she's had her own tragedies besides this, because like she doesn't remember that she was a year old. Um, but like her her cousin passed away from an illness, and she's you know had kind of a tough life. She's also a little obsessed with Rory, the gentleman who found her um, when she was a baby. Like in a in a not appropriate kind of way. Like she kind of pushes her his boundaries a little bit. Um, so we know that she has some issues. She knows you know, there's you know there's a lot going on. <laughs> so. One day, Dixie, you know, Dixie has a pretty good life. She does have a very nice boyfriend. It's kind of, like, stable, really nice guy. And one day, she's Googling, looking around at stuff, and it turns out she discovers that the house that she was born in, the house where her family was killed, uh, is up for sale. So, like, why not buy it, right? You know, murder house. (laughs) Yay. Happens to actually be where you lived. You know, she decides to buy the house. So right there, you know it's not a good idea. But she does it. Her boyfriend's like, "Hell no! You are on your own with this. I am not." Because they were living together in, in, in an apartment. She's like, "They're like, we, I am not moving into that house with you. That is creepy. That is messed up. And you're on your own." Like so, they're they're not getting along right now because he's just like, "You need to get help or something." But like, do not move into that house. But she's like, "Yeah, this is how I'm gonna work through my problems. I'm gonna live in the house where my whole family was killed." So, from, like, day one, from, like, night one, she starts hearing noises. She starts seeing things. She sees the ghosts of her murdered family members, like, in all their disgusting, you know, disgusting murdered, like, forms all over the house. Does she leave? No. Because she thinks they're trying to tell her something. But then she becomes, like, a little more obsessed with it. She gets the furniture out of storage that used to be in the house and, like, starts setting the house up exactly the way it was uh, from pictures. Like, she can tell from pictures um, when, when her family was killed, which is a little odd. And then, while she's doing this, she finds these notes in the drawer of a desk uh, because her uncle had been holding this stuff in storage. And he does not think, or he did not think, he passed away, he did not think that her father was responsible for the murders. And now she thinks that between that and what the ghosts are trying to tell her, that that is actually the case. And that the person who carried out the murders is still alive somewhere. You know, maybe she's in danger. But at the same time, she's dangerously unraveling. Like, she's, she's living in the house where her whole family was killed, you know, seeing ghosts. So obviously, things are not, like, healthy for her. Um, and it's just, it's... You know, I had a friend who was like, I laughed out loud several times, and I was like, okay. okay, I can see that. I mean, it's really over the top. Like, really over the top. And as I mentioned at the beginning, super graphic, super violent. So, you know, it's just, it's the wildest thriller of the summer, I'm going to say. Again, it's called Theme Music, and it is by T. Marie Vandelli.
2: I did not know a thing about that, and when I saw the title in the agenda, it sounded like a happy book, like theme music, and that is not at all
0: <laughs> what I was
2: expecting from that.
0: <laughs> now it's more like an American horror yeah, story. Yeah, now I hear that like Dee, seriously Dee, in my head.
2: Yeah, that's that's really great. <laughs> um, so speaking of maybe disturbing, but in a very very different way, um, my next pick is wow, it's a doozy. It's Three Women by Lisa Tadeo, which. It suddenly has just like kind of blown up all over the place. The book has an Instagram account, which I don't actually know that this is the kind of book that should have an Instagram account, but yeah, it's just being reviewed everywhere. Like every single copy we had at the bookstore was gone from the time that I like left to Portland and came back and it's, it's just everywhere. And it's a book that I feel like you're either going to really, really love or really, really hate. And I'll explain why. Uh, so real quick, trigger warning, the book does have discussions of an eating disorder and of uh, sexual assault, specifically date rape. Um, so it's not graphic. It's kind of like, it, you know, it's a recollection or not not recollection, I guess, of something that happened, but it is there. Um, so Lisa Tadeo is an award-winning journalist who set out to write a book about women's desire. And so she spent, I think, eight years, like better part of a decade researching this subject by like living with the women that she was talking to and researching she like has i think done like a essentially a road trip across the united states like two or three times at this point as part of this research so she was just like living and breathing everything about these women to get their stories and their perspectives on on like their sex lives basically on, on lust and like what that looks like to hopefully point uh not point paint like, the, the picture that, you know, what we think of as, as women's lusts and desire is not anywhere near as, like, simple black and white, but that it's quite nuanced, which it obviously is. But by the time she actually published the book, if I remember correctly, based on the introduction, like, tons of the women essentially said, like, yeah, I don't want you telling my story after all. Like, even with, with being anonymous, <laughs> they were just afraid that somehow, like, their stories would get back to them one way or another, and not everybody felt, like, confident telling them. So she... At the end of the day, really boiled it down and decides to tell the story of, as the title would, you know, uh, suggest, three women. So these three women are, uh, one is a high school student. By the time we are meeting her, she's in her 20s. But she is reflecting on a relationship that her high school, like her teacher, started with her. He very much like approached her, at least that's, you know, the version of events that we're given, And he started a relationship with her that is obviously illegal from a statutory rape perspective. And she goes along with it because she's young and impressionable. And when we meet her, like at the start of her story, she is in a trial because she's finally come forth and decided to press charges against this teacher, you know, for coming after her. And then the second woman that you meet is a woman who is in essentially a loveless marriage. Like she married who she thought was the love of her life. And however many years into it, he just, like, refuses to touch her. She expresses all the time that she is, like, a very, like, sexual being and she wants to be kissed. Like, she talks all the time about, like, all I want is someone to, like, French kiss me. And obviously it's, like, for her husband to, like, touch her. And they go to therapy and everything. And the therapist, who is a woman, and she comes to resent, basically says, like, well, if he doesn't like doing those things, he doesn't have to. So, you know, deal with it, basically. And that's exactly what happens. He's just like, well, the therapist said I don't have to touch you. So like, that's life. And she's crushed by, you know, this this piece of news and starts up an affair with like her high school boyfriend, even though he's married and they like meet up in hotel rooms and stuff. And so she's, the perspective we're getting is that she's in this like women's group, like talking about the fact that she's having an affair and then the last woman we meet is a very successful like New York restaurateur who she met her husband, I think also when they were both, I can't remember if it's culinary school or just school in general, but they're both like huge foodie people and they open up a restaurant. She's front of the house. He's like a chef and they're very happily married. But what no one knows is that they uh, enjoy essentially sexy times where husband gets to watch her with someone that's not her husband. It's their thing and it's like what they do. So the book essentially tells each of these women's stories in, like, pieces. Like, you get, you know, story one, story two, story three in, like, bits. And then it kind of starts again and you get, you know, more and more of the stories reveal themselves as you go on. And I, it is definitely a very, like, no-holds-barred. If you, like, are someone who blushes at seeing, you know, sexy details on the page, like, beware. Especially, I think, that second and third women. Um, <laughs> you you get, like, the blow but by- oh, God, that was a terrible use of, not blow by blow, um, just the details of like what their, you know, sexy life ent- entails. And it is, for all three of them, sometimes really cringy, like seeing how the, the high schooler is just so like impressed by and in love with this high school teacher who, you know, drops her like a hot potato when his wife finds out and then to watch her come to that slow realization after talking to her friends that like, hey, that wasn't love or romance, like that was illegal. And, you know, that opens up a huge discussion because everyone, of course, turns against her. Like, why do we or don't we believe women when they come forth with these stories? So it's obviously very timely. And then the other two stories are in so many ways kind of unsavory. Like, you don't always like the women when they talk about their reasons for wanting or not wanting certain things. And not because they're not allowed to, like, feel sexual feelings. They are. But the way they go about It um, is like sometimes, yeah, unsavory for lack of a better term, which the point of the book, I think, is that that's supposed to be okay. The one thing I will say about the book is that it has been painted, again, as being this like sweeping, extensive piece of work that covers like all women or like all the entire spectrum of women's like lust and desire. I don't know that I agree with that Um, these are kind of these very specific snapshots and they're very, very interesting if, if sometimes cringy, I don't know that I would call it like as comprehensive and maybe it would have been if the rest of her subjects had, you know, stick stuck around, but it is definitely a book that I think will lead to like really, really explosive book club talk. Like you're either going to, again, I love it or hate it for so many reasons, but there's just, it's rife with like women's issues that I think would be really fun to, like, discuss and duke out. So, yeah, it's it's a doozy, but I think it's still worth reading. And that's Three Women by Lisa Tadeo.
0: All right. And now for something completely different. <laughs> 100%.
2: <laughs> Let me tell you about our sponsor. So, this episode is sponsored by Doubleday and The Nickel Boys by Colson Whitehead. In this Rivera follow-up to the Pulitzer Prize and National Book Award-winning number one New York Times bestseller, The Underground Railroad, Colson Whitehead brilliantly dramatizes another strand of American history through the story of two boys sentenced to a hellish reform school in Jim Crow era, Florida, based on the real story of a reform school in Florida that operated for 111 years and warped the lives of thousands of children. The Nickel Boys is a devastating driven narrative that showcases a great American novelist writing at the height of his powers. And that is The Nickel Boys by Colson Whitehead. Thanks for sponsoring the show so good. It's so good. I wanted to ask you, and then you did it for all the books last week, so I got your review there. (laughs) It was everything. All the questions I had were answered.
0: Ugh. I just
2: love him. He's the best.
0: Yes. So my next pick is light and lovely. (laughs) Let's pick the mood up. (laughs) It's The Marriage Clock by Zara Rahim. And it is a lovely romantic comedy slash feminist fiction Takes place in California. It's about a young woman named Layla. She's 26. She lives in LA. Uh, her parents immigrated here from India when she was before she was born. Um, and basically, her parents have two things in mind for her. They're like, you know, as our daughter, you have two things that you have to do. You have to get married, and you have to have children. Like those are the absolute things that you have to do for us. Um, her parents uh, met. They were uh, an arranged marriage, you know, and they're. They want her to get married, and they want to fix up uh, the, Layla with somebody, you know, that she doesn't know, and she's not really, like, into this. She's like, I don't know that I want an arranged marriage. Um, they're not, like, super strict with her. They let her go off to college, and while she was in college, she started dating, um, which was a whole new experience for her. She feels like she was behind everyone else because she wasn't allowed to date until she moved out. And, you know, she's, and her friends think that she's, like, really picky. Her friend asks her, you know, what is it that you're looking for in a relationship? Because you, you date... For maybe two weeks, I think two weeks is your longest relationship, and so she starts listing off all the things that she's looking for in in the perfect man, and it gets to like number forty six, and her friend is like, "Yeah, okay, um, you're you might just be too picky," but she doesn't think so. She watched lots of Bollywood movies when she was young, and she thinks that you know love at first sight and like a sweeping romance is it, is absolutely possible, and it's going to happen to her. So she's been waiting, but like her parents' thirtieth anniversary is coming up. And they're having a big party, and they're, they're getting very stressed out. They, they think that now, that because she's 26 and she hasn't been married, that they've failed somehow. And so her mother tells her, we're going to arrange a marriage for you. And she's like, mm, no, I don't think so. Um, but they talk her into allowing them to set her up like on a couple of dates, and they do not go well. Um she you know she's like this guy is this is what's wrong with him and this is what's wrong with him and she's she just she's not enjoying it. So after several of these disasters, she says to her mother, "Okay, how about this? Give me 3 months. Give me 3 months to meet the man of my dreams, and if I don't, I will marry whoever you want me to marry. Like I will do it." So her parents are like, "Okay, deal, you got a deal." Uh but she so she starts like she's like, "How am I going to meet the person of my dreams in 3 months?" And she starts, like, internet dating. Her friends recommend that she tries that. But again, more dating disasters. You know, one guy turns out to be, like, a super stoner. All he does is smoke pot, and it's not her thing. And another guy uh, turns out to be, like, 30 years older than the photo he's using for his dating. And it's just, it's not working out for her. So the question is, like, will she be able to find, you know, her Prince Charming in three months? Um, And it's just, it's it's really fun. I really enjoyed it. You know, like we know that she's being too picky. Like we know that, you know, she's being unreasonable about a few things. Um, but it's, it's fun and it's, you know, it's also important. It's like a look at traditions, you know, versus contemporary life. You know, this, these things were very important to her parents. Obviously they had an arranged marriage, you know, and they've been together for 30 years, but like, you know, this is not what she wants for herself now. And so like that conflict is there. Uh, I just really enjoyed it. This is, this is our Raheem first novel
2: and I look forward to what she does next. It's the marriage clock. Well, I'm going to go ahead and keep it light too. Um, so we have somewhat of a theme going on here. Um, <laughs> my next pick is how to hack a heartbreak by Kristen Rockaway, who I love. Um, she is a local author. I actually met her at, the bookstore um, that I work at with her first book, which is called, well, Woman's Guide to Traveling the World, I think. Um, but this book is so, <laughs> I feel like, attacked, triggered, seen, maybe all at once. <laughs> it's, so again, how to hack a heartbreak. She, so the, the main character is uh, Melanie, Mel, she goes by Mel. At the beginning of the book, she's basically been stood up from like a bad, um, what we would think of as like a Tinder match, except the app that they use in this book is called Flutter. It's you know same idea, swipe right, swipe left. And so the guy like flat out stands her up and she's just like had it because she's been on this like terrible streak of like all the dating app woes that many of us have been familiar with, like unsolicited, uh, you know, eggplant emoji pics and just people that stand her up or they have like really terrible conversation or ask really inappropriate questions like five seconds in. So she's just like over it. She is, she works in tech support for this company called Hatch that essentially provides like some funding and kind of like a temporary co-work space for app developers. So she knows all about apps and and Kristen actually has a a background in, uh, I think, like software engineering. So she's very well informed on like this aspect But, you know, her work life is tough because she's, you know, very confident and good at her job, but these app developers just treat her like they're total dude bro, like, stereotypes. And so after having, again, this, like, one too many bad dates and, like, talking stuff over with her girlfriends and having, like, a fun night out, she kind of says out loud, like, you know, what what if there were an app that is essentially, like, Yelp for dudes and... That's what she comes up with. She comes up with this app called Jerk Alert that does kind of exactly what it sounds like. It allows um, men and women to you know go onto this app and essentially kind of rate people based on their dating habits. So like if somebody has you know somebody's a perpetual like ghoster or if yeah they like send unsolicited pics of their you know genitalia or whatever. Um, So it. It blows up, like, overnight once she develops the thing. But she does so anonymously. Like, she doesn't really tell anybody in her life that she's the person behind it. And that gets really interesting when, you know, the people that she works with are taking note of it. And everybody wants to know who did this. And half the people out there love it. And then the other half freaking hate it because they think it's just, like, people, you know, taking their vengeance out on a relationship that didn't work out. And then there's the other folk who are like, hey, yeah, thanks for letting me know that, you know, homie likes to ghost. And the, the person that she, of course, right when she's not looking, strikes up a relationship with, It's like, love interest with at the office, he has his feelings about it, too. And she just realizes, like, the further and further into this relationship they go, that her, like, keeping this a secret is probably going to blow up on her face. Um, it's really funny. It is very, like, for anybody that's dated in this age and been on the dating app, again, you're going to feel like a combination of, like... All of those things because you've been there and you've done that. Everything from the way that the texts are written out and, like, the shorthand and that awkward, like, first date types of conversations or first message conversations. It's just very much a book about what it's like to date right now and to have to do so via, like, the dating app revolution. Um, But it's also, like, a really sweet story. It's funny. Uh, She's great at writing really funny, sweet, light romance that, yeah, I super enjoyed it. I I read it in one sitting. It's just a really good time. But, again, you're going (laughs) to – if you've had a bad dating experience, just – me like Ay, this. That sounds familiar. So yeah. Anyway, that's how to hack a heartbreak by Kristen Rockaway.
0: All right. So my last pick today, I it's called Tell Me Everything, but I can actually tell you very little about it. Um, it's from last week, I think. Uh, I was super excited to read it. It's by Cambria Brockman, and again, it's called Tell Me Everything, and. Of course, I, I talked to my attention originally because it was compared to The Secret History, and while I have never read a book that I think is comparable to The Secret History, I will read every single one that people put that, you know, comparison on. So, I mean, and there are many similar things. Um, it's, you know, it takes place at a small New England college. Uh, the book opens with a bunch of people on a tall precipice. It's about a group of friends, and at the beginning of this book, you learn that one of them will be dead By the morning. Whereas, like, in The Secret History, you know, the first sentence is, the snow in the mountains was melting and Bunny had been dead for several weeks before we came to understand the gravity of our situation. Yes, I have read that book 27 times. Um, And so, like, in this one we don't know who the person is that is not going to make it out of the situation. So the main character of this book is Malin. I think that's how you pronounce it. It's M-A-L-I-N, and one of the characters in the book, I was calling her Malin in my head, but then somebody's like, Malin, over here, or something. And I was like, oh, okay. So I'm going to call her Malin. Um, when we meet her, she's a freshman. She's just gone to this little tiny school. It's They call it, like, the Ivy... The School for Ivy League drop, like, uh, excuse me, Ivy League rejects, like, people who couldn't get into Harvard and Yale and stuff. It's, like, this really snotty, fancy little school in the middle of the woods in Maine, sort of, like, nothing else going on there, nothing else to do there. Just, like, everybody's really close, and everyone is supposedly very, very well off, or come from money. And so she's a freshman, she's gone there, and she, and she meets, on the first day, several people who are going to be her best friends over the next four years. But, you know, as they go along, they all, you know, sort of confess these secrets to Malin, and you know that, like, there's something going on with her, and there's something from her past, um, and we, but we don't know what it is. And you kind of get the feeling that she herself might not be the most trustworthy or the most stable. Um, And so it's sort of like a novel about, like, people's chances to reinvent themselves when they go to school. But is everyone there actually as affluent as they say they are? Um, Are they the people they they present themselves as? Do people have, you know, secret motives? Um, A lot of it might be misleading information. It's sort of like this sinister, disturbing novel. Um, One thing I will say, though, is that everything I read about it was like, it's the next Gone Girl! It's the next girl on the train! Um, It's a great thriller! And I don't really agree with that assessment. Um, It's sort of like a great novel, like, you know, sort of, as I said, sinister, like building the story and like trying to figure out what it is. But the death that happens at the beginning isn't mentioned again, really, until the last, you know, several pages. So it's not like, you know, you're, you're going to be like, who did this and what happened and all this stuff. Um, it's more like a, a group of friends and, like, who's telling the truth and what's going to happen. That sort of, more, like, character-driven. Um,
2: but I did really
0: enjoy it. And, again, it is called Tell Me Everything, and it's by Cambria Brockman.
2: Okay, last time for books. So my last pick is Because Internet, Understanding the New Rules of Language by Gretchen McCullough, which I'm not 100% done with, I'll be very honest, but I'm like 80% and I feel pretty good. So it's, I mean, A, I'm just going to come out right now and say that if you are a language, like, purist, you're going to be real mad. Um, so just, like, take a deep breath and keep going because I swear it's it's an interesting read, <laughs> But uh, Gretchen McCullough is a Wired columnist, and she's the co-creator of a linguistics podcast. That's uh, what's it called? What's it called? A enthusiasm, li- uh, I think. And so she wrote this book that's all about how the rise of the internet and you know social media, all that good stuff, has changed essentially everything we know about language, and it's created like a new language genre, and that's that she you know refers to as very simply just informal writing. That, you know, there's obviously a lot of folks out there who were really frustrated with, like, the use of emojis and memes and GIFs and acronyms. But she argues that, like, all of that has actually made us, like, more efficient communicators. And she goes into all this, like, minutia that I just found so interesting. Like, the fact that, like, she goes into, like, what about your personality or, like, when you were born, how old you are, or, like, where you live would make you more likely to punctuate versus, like, not punctuate your texts and how using punctuation, especially like periods is like now <laughs> seen as like a form of like passive aggression <laughs> when it's like used in language. Um, like why a person writes LOL in all caps versus not like, it's a bunch of little stuff like that, but it's also, it's in a really funny voice, but the stuff she's saying like makes a lot of sense, even if you don't agree with it, like you just kind of have to accept that like everything she's saying is true. It, it has changed the way we communicate, you know, as to whether you feel it's for the good or not, it, it's I it guess up to you. But um, I learned a bunch of other stuff too, like the fact that the word meme was, it looks like coined by someone back in like 1976. It, uh, I think the word or LOL itself came up in like a 1980s chat room. Like none of those terms are quite as like modern or current as we like think they are. Uh, It's just a really fun book that, you know, takes something that is so ubiquitous at this point and that we all kind of just maybe do um, or don't, but that you at least witness in such a large scale and like really dives into it. Like, what does it mean? Why do we do it? Is it good or bad? What does it do to communication? It's just, th- and it's like, again, full of really like funny, funny, um, but very informative, you know, pieces of, of, of details, I guess, about language. And, and it, again, some of it may like really tick you off if you're the kind of person who sits and like writes your texts out, like with complete sentences and zero shorthand and perfect punctuation, but it'll still like make you take a look at like why it is that people do it. Um, and that it's not just a teen thing. So yeah, it's really interesting. So I really loved it. And that is Because Internet, Understanding the New Rules of Language by Gretchen McCullough.
0: All right. So those are our new books. What are you going to read next?
2: I am thinking that I will finally finish the last book in the Alan Bradley Flavia Luce series because they're my fave and I'm so sad that they're over. So yeah, I think I'm finally going to make time to do that this weekend. I love her.
0: All right. I am going to read Interior Chinatown by Charles Yu. I'm very excited. Um he wrote How to Live Safely in a Science Fictional Universe, and he's been writing for Westworld most recently. Oh yeah. Um, which has been going really well for him, so I was, you know, sad, wondering if we were ever gonna get another book for him from him, kind of like David Benioff. He does Game of Thrones now and his novels, you know, have stopped and oh, he was just so wonderful. City of Thieves. Um but new book I actually don't even know anything about it I'm just excited that it's him <laughs> so that's all I need to know really so that is it for us today we made it we
2: made it <laughs> smacked ourselves in <laughs> the didn't... face a few times <laughs> <It's> yeah <fine.
0: laughs> I mean we we had like struggles getting to this point to begin with <laughs> so yeah it's just that kind of year but we got to talk about books and that is what is exciting so totally um, thank you to our sponsors uh, you can check out the Versified podcast from Nashville Public Radio you can go to thirdlovecom books to get 15% off your first purchase. And thank you to Doubleday and the Nickel Boys by Colson Whitehead for sponsoring. You can drop us a line at all the books at bookriots.com. You can find us online. We both hang out on Instagram. You can find Vanessa at Buenos Dias SD. That's B U E N O S D I A Z S D. And I am at Friends and Comes Alive. And if you want to give us a treat, you can go to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or review. It helps other book lovers to find us. And as much as we would love to tell you about more books today, I am melting in my office. So you can read about more titles out now in the show notes at bookriot.com slash all the books, as well as find a link to our weekly new books newsletter. And in the meantime, happy, happy reading. reading.
1: Woo-hoo! We
0: made it. <laughs>
2: I'm sorry about all that drama. <laughs> You're like, help. Yeah, <laughs> Does it make sense? <laughs> I wish you could have seen me. I legit like was holding the mic in midair and just like went completely catatonically still. It's like, I don't want to like affect her. And then it happened again. So that was weird. <laughs> but no, please. It's fine. Oh, yeah, I did not stop recording. I should probably do
0: that.